Today's episode is brought to you by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook of your choice and support this show by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, Humorless Queers, All in the Media, and Activism from the ACLU. So here's another story of how the government's screwing you and taking away your privacy rights. Now, these are core constitutional rights in the Fourth Amendment. You need to get a warrant. Eh, Constitution, who needs it? Uh, so there's a new law called CISA that was stuck into an omnibus bill so that it can't uh, be taken out and it'll be more easily passed. That's uh, the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act of 2015. That's where they share your information with the government. Uh, and Senator Ron Wyden, who has fought against it, explains that it is a surveillance bill by another name. So, uh, of course, they tell you, oh, it's the terrorists. We're trying to get the terrorists at ISIS. Mm, maybe not so much. Um, here, The Verge explains, the bill would make it easier for the private sector companies to share user information with the government and other companies removing privacy and liability protections in the name of better cybersecurity. Take all the info without a warrant so that you could be more secure. I thought we weren't supposed to trade our liberties for securities, that that was a bad idea. I'm pretty sure that's what our founding fathers told us, and that it doesn't really work. You don't get either, as Benjamin Franklin famously said. Now, Evan Greer, who's uh, with Fight for the Future campaign, said and explained, it's clear now that this bill was never intended to prevent cyber attacks. It's a disingenuous attempt to quietly expand the U.S. government's Surveillance programs. Now we'll go over to Wired magazine that has more details on this. CISA has had alarmed the privacy community by giving companies the ability to share cybersecurity information with federal agencies, including the NSA, notwithstanding any other provision of law. That means CISA's information sharing channel, ostensibly created for responding quickly to hacks and breaches, could also provide a loophole in privacy laws that enabled intelligence and law enforcement surveillance without a warrant and they took away one other provision that would have been helpful in the old days they had one more safety check it was supposed to go to homeland security and then go to the uh, law enforcement agencies and they were supposed to make sure that you know that your privacy didn't get violated now that didn't happen often either but at least it was one more safeguard that safeguard's also been taken out you don't need a warrant anymore so law enforcement can get in there at many different levels, and just look into all your information online, uh, which is the core of your privacy. You ever do anything online that you don't want the government or anyone else to see? Well, too bad for you. They snuck this into the bill. They're coming. So in the Senate, of course, the establishment uh, is very bipartisan. You, you think that there's a real fight here? The Democrats and Republicans don't agree, as you're told on TV? No. Whenever it comes to screwing you, they totally agree. Now, you've got good fighters like Ron Wyden on the Democratic side who are against this. You've got good libertarians on the Republican side who are against this. But in the Senate, it passed 74 to 21. It wasn't even close. The establishment agrees. You don't need your rights anymore. Now, Wired explains further. The latest version actually chips away even further at the remaining personal information protections that privacy advocates had fought for in the version of the bill that passed the Senate. The earlier bill had only allowed that back-channel use of the data for law enforcement in cases of imminent threats, uh, while the new bill requires just a specific threat, potentially allowing the search of the data for any specific terms, regardless of timeliness. 
So the Senate version that it passed was already terrible. That's the one that passed 7421. When they go to the House, they sneak it into a giant bill that the president's going to have a hard time vetoing because it has so many other provisions in it. And the details are worse in the House than they were in the Senate. Uh, Robin Green, uh, Policy Counsel for Open Technology Institute, says they took a bad bill and they made it worse. Okay, fantastic. And they explain here that lumping CISA with the omnibus bill further reduces any chance for debate over its surveillance-friendly provisions or a White House veto. They explain that the reason for that is, uh, now if it's just a bill that stands on its own, if the president wanted to veto it, which he had mentioned earlier, then change his mind, now the White House supports it anyway. You know, the I've said this before, if Barack Obama had a wrestling nickname, it would be the establishment. So, of course, he's in favor of it. But if he wanted to veto it, if it's a bill that stands by itself, it would be easier. But if it's part of a giant bill that has to be passed for the the government to function and have a budget this year, well, it's nearly impossible to veto. And it's nearly impossible to extract it from the bill. The Senate has to also vote on that bill. They also have to pass that bill. Voila, problem solved. No debate needed. Just move along. Uh, All your rights are gone now. Um, Now, one more provision explanation here in Wired. Even in its earlier version, CISA had drawn the opposition of tech firms, including Apple, Twitter, and Reddit, as well as the Business Software Alliance and the Computer and Communications Industry Association. In April, a coalition of 55 civil liberties groups and security experts signed on to an open letter opposing it. In July, the Department of Homeland Security itself warned the bill could overwhelm the agency with data of, quote, dubious value at the same time as it, quote, sweeps away privacy protections. So don't get this twisted. It's not like, oh, yeah, it's a progressive show and they don't want to protect us against cybersecurity. They don't understand the threats involved. They're, you know, just a bunch of progressives. No, no, no. It's us and almost every major company in the tech field, plus all the civil liberties groups, in the, almost all the civil liberties in, groups in the country. I don't know if there are more than 55. And the Department of Homeland Security, who also you're going to collect stuff that's not going to help you in Homeland Security. It's of dubious value unless you're using it for political reasons. I would tell you that don't let them take our rights away, and you should fight back. And we have won these fights before in the past uh, when they try to do similar legislation, take away our privacy rights, and intrude into what we look on uh, online. But this is going to be awfully hard to fight. How are you going to beat the giant omnibus bill that they need to function uh, the government, to, to for it to, to keep running, and all the money is in there? So let's fight. But the real fight is to get rid of this corrupt system in the first place because it's it's like a tidal wave. It comes again and again, and it washes over our shores. We fight it back, and then money comes in, and, and the establishment's thirst for taking our rights away and snooping in on everything we do comes back in. you got to change the system entirely so that these guys are not in charge and people who actually care about the American people can get elected in free and fair elections. Otherwise, this is going to be done ad infinitum and ad nauseum. Rewind the tape, that's his face. He was in the wrong place when it's social. We got it all here, he's local. This is what he knows, and this is what he owes. Here's where he goes to buy his clothes. Man, if they really want the rundown on me, they should ask. I'm a person, nothing to hide but my ass. For certain, I caught them peeping and keeping. Count up my actions, what the fuck they tracking? What the fuck they tracking?
pleased to have on the line with us Marcy Wheeler. She's an independent journalist specializing in national security and civil liberties. The website EmptyWheel.net. You can tweet her at, at EmptyWheel. Uh, Marcy, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks while. for having me. Uh, so y- tell me why metadata surveillance has failed France. What's What's the story here? Since the attack, everyone's been saying, oh, encryption surely uh, prevented us from learning about the attack ahead of time. We're learning that's not true, that the attackers used unencrypted phones and had been wiretapped by Belgian authorities. Um, But the other thing that's true is that even before you get to encryption, Part of the system that the NSA uses especially, but France surely uses a similar uh, approach, part of the system is to collect all of this metadata um, from communications and using that metadata identify what the most important communications would be. And even if those communications are encrypted, the NSA has ways around that. So if the NSA finds stuff that they think is going to be particularly interesting, they're going to go hack a phone or they're going to go um, hack the way in which somebody interacts with the Internet. And, um, in fact, it, it looks like the dragnet worked to some extent. Uh, just as an example, I just read that one of the leaders of the plot switched his phone five times, and, and that's one of the things that the dragnet is, is designed to do is to be able to track uh, when somebody picks up a new phone. Um, and so that you know that would have thwarted his attempts to thwart surveillance would have failed because of that. But ultimately, something happened that authorities in France and Belgium weren't watching closely. And um, when people automatically assume that encryption is what led us led led us to fail to thwart this, um, what they're really saying is that the metadata program didn't prove that these. Uh, communications were valuable enough to 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 decrypt or okay. to translate to, or to, to translate to, uh, to, to, to break this down into English for people who don't know what metadata is or encryption is. Um, basically, in, encryption is encoding your messages so that they're very difficult for spy agencies to read. Uh, or anybody to read for that matter. Well, anybody to and, read because yeah. you and I use encryption all the time when we go use an ATM machine. We right. use encryption all the time online. The the only area where where we have confirmed that the attackers used encryption is that one of them made a hotel reservation with his own credit card and his own name. But doing that online generally involves a form of encryption to ensure that nobody kind of jumps into your transactions online right, and steals your credit card. secure language, SSL, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So that's the only encryption that we know that they've used. They've used a lot of other counter-surveillance measures, but right. that's it. They've also, now, by the way, used um, dialects that right. now uh, the, they found hard to translate. Right. Now, the metadata is who called whom, when, and how long they talked, but it's not the actual conversations. Right. Um, or who corresponded with whom. And, 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 and the reason why this is consequential right now is that Section 215 of the Patriot Act, which allows for the mass collection of metadata, has been altered so that that data is still going to be collected, but it's not going to be held by the federal government. I guess it's going to be held by the private corporations. Which... Well, they already hold it. Okay. I mean, what, what listeners should know is, one, um, their metadata is already is still going to be collected in bulk if they call overseas because that's not collected domestically. Okay. Their metadata, their internet metadata, is still going to be collected 
because they can do that overseas. So um, they're still being bulk collected on. All of everyone listening to this, two weeks from now when this program uh, expires, you're still going to be bulk collected by the NSA. I'm sorry to inform you. What will change is that the domestic records will as they are now, will be held by the phone companies. And if the NSA and FBI want them, whereas now when the FBI goes to the phone company, uh, mostly they can only get who you called. They'll be able to get who you called and who they called um, and a bunch more metadata. uh, Build a tree. And and then it will get dumped into NSA's giant maw and some more analysis will happen to it. Right. And, and by the way, the, the FBI director very recently testified to Congress that he expects to get more data once the program shifts, transitions in two weeks, than he, than under the current, under the current rule. And that's because uh, they're going to be getting more cell phone data. They're going to be getting more VOIP data. They're going to be getting a lot more texting data. So in fact, what the NSA and FBI will be getting in two weeks is better for them. It just means they won't have everything in a server somewhere that they can access. In you one know, in nice, neat little minutes. package. Yeah. Right. Um, so uh, we're talking to Marcy Wheeler, emptywheel.net, uh, at Empty Wheel. M- Marcy, these guys came out a couple of days ago after they shot up Paris and said, we're coming to Washington, D.C. next. Now, I'm sitting here in Washington, D.C. That doesn't make me real happy. Um, I'm not, frankly, all that terrified, uh, even though I'm five blocks from the White House. But um, there, it seems like there is an appropriate level of, you know, spying, of keeping our country safe, of keeping all of us safe. Where do you think that we should be drawing the lines? What, what are the mistakes that we're making? What are we doing that we shouldn't be doing? What are we not doing that we should be doing? Well, I, it is my impression that the NSA spends far more effort collecting it all and less effort on analysis. Um, And less, just as an example, I I kind of already briefly said, but there are initial reports coming out that the terrorists in Paris also used a a Moroccan dialect that proved difficult for Belgian wiretappers to understand, and also Arabic. And we know that the NSA doesn't have enough Arabic translators. They probably have even fewer Moroccan translators that would know the dialect in question. And so we need more investment in that so that if there is a, I mean, because that Moroccan dialect is going to work exactly the same as encryption. Right. Uh, because the, you know, the NSA is going to have oh, to look go at, look at what the Apaches did to the Japanese. That's precisely, yeah, that's exactly right. And so that's sort of what these terrorists did to, to the Belgian authorities. And, and that provides you the same kind of obscurity that encryption will. Um, and so we need to bump up those areas as well, the translation and the analysis side. I think that the collect it all, um, you know, it, it does, I think, I mean, you'll see people on both sides of this argument, but if the haystack is too, too big, you're spending too much time juggling with the haystack. Um, Mm. and, and I think, you know, the NSA time after time says, Hey, let's go develop, collect all of this. Um, another report that's come out this week is that terrorists are increasingly using PlayStation fours to communicate. Um, and that, that's not encrypted, but what's likely is that metadata is not collected. And so it may be that the NSA needs to be more nimble to be able to go to Sony and say, give us the metadata um, and find a way to work 
to to manage that metadata rather than right. saying I'm going to collect everything that passes the European continent. Right. We just have a minute left before the break. Is this is this an example of you know we kind of fell in love with technology and or big big technology companies gave us a big sales pitch and said we'll do it for you just give us a couple hundred billion dollars when in fact we should have been just investing in good old fashioned human intelligence the old spy thing. Yeah, that's a big part of it. And and the other thing is that. It's, it's one thing for Target to use big data to figure out who's pregnant, right, which is the classic case of right. being able to predict something. Terrorists are a lot more nimble than pregnant ladies, and so it's a lot harder to develop rules about what they look like from their communications mm. that will uh, be robust over time. And so I think that there's a faith in big data applied to a small group of ever-moving targets right. that is misplaced. And I, I called through the air that night, a calm sea voice without line. I could only smile, I've been alone sometime. And all, and all, it's been fine. And you, The lead of Scott Pelley's November 8th 60 Minutes report on security clearances said it all. Quote, the fugitive Edward Snowden, convicted spy Chelsea Manning, and mass murderer Aaron Alexis all had one thing in common, U.S. government security clearances, which they turned into weapons. Close quote. How do you get Snowden, Manning, and the Washington Navy Yard spree shooter in the same category? By treating leaks to the press and a sawed-off shotgun as the same thing. It's a peculiar stance for a TV news magazine that prides itself on its tradition of investigative reporting to take, that getting information out to the public is a form of violence. It's also odd for journalists to describe Manning, because she was convicted under the Espionage Act, as a convicted spy. The law forbids giving an unauthorized person classified information, language that was not meant to give the U.S. an official secrets act, but which has been treated as such by the Obama administration. Regardless of whether this is legal or constitutional, the act doesn't change the meaning of the word spy. Presumably, when 60 Minutes reporters get classified information from government officials, they don't say to their sources, thanks for spying for us. At one point, Pelley acknowledges that some believe that Snowden and Manning were right to expose what they saw as government abuses. But as Kevin Gastola noted for the blog Shadow Proof, the show is presenting a national security state argument, doubtless encouraging an increasingly chilly climate for potential whistleblowers. Unfortunately, elite journalists all too often have a tendency to identify not with those who expose official secrets, but with those who persecute those who expose them. Epitomized by Time Magazine's Michael Grunewald writing that he, quote, can't wait to write a defense of the drone strike that takes out Julian Assange, close quote. Or meet the press's David Gregory asking Glenn Greenwald why, since he aided and abetted Edward Snowden, he himself should not be charged with a crime. 
Well, finally, though, there are more subtle ways of siding with the secret keepers and against the revealers. New York Times reporter Charlie Savage told Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman November 4th not to blame Obama or Bush for the prosecution of whistleblowers, which is something that just happened. Quote, because of technology, it's impossible to hide who's in contact with whom anymore, and cases are viable to investigate now that weren't before. That's not something Obama did or Bush did. It's just the way it is in the 21st century. And investigative journalism is still grappling with the implications of that. Close quote. As fair associate Norman Solomon wrote for Common Dreams, it's as if the president at the wheel has little choice but to follow the technological routes that have opened up for Big Brother. Quote, in effect, the message is that if you don't like mass surveillance and draconian measures to intimidate whistleblowers as well as journalists, your beef is really with technology. And good luck with pushing back against that. Close quote. It's true that refraining from using the tools of modern surveillance to wipe out investigative journalism requires a recognition that making public things government would rather keep secret can have a positive value. But if journalists don't acknowledge this, why should we expect the government to? We've talked to you in the past about Stingray police surveillance. This is a class of surveillance device known as a cell site simulator, and it pretends to be a cell phone tower in order to extract metadata and location information, and in some cases, even the content of phones that are connected to it. There are 2,000 cases that could be overturned as the first motion for a retrial has been filed accusing the state attorney's office and the police of deliberate and willful misrepresentation of this technology used as Stingray. Now, when I say the state's attorney's office in 2,000 cases, I'm not talking about nationally, Lewis. I'm talking about within the Baltimore Police Department alone. We're looking at 2,000 cases that could be overturned because of misuse of this secret surveillance method. And the argument here... Uh, is that prosecutors are required to reveal evidence against defendants in the discovery phase of a criminal trial. And The Guardian did an investigation a few months ago which revealed there was a non-disclosure agreement that the, FBI, that the uh, local police and prosecutors were forced to sign with the FBI before using the Stingray devices, meaning that they were... Uh, uh, forced to withdraw or even drop cases rather than reveal that they were using the Stingray device. And now 2,000 cases are being re-examined where police secretly used Stingrays. This is just Baltimore, Lewis, 2,000 cases. Uh, Baltimore, if you look at the biggest offenders of this, yeah, it'll be in places like Baltimore. So, you know, extrapolate this, I mean, uh, all over the country, what are we talking here, tens of thousands of cases? Could be, absolutely could be. Of course, not every department is using these Stingray devices. And all this really means is that police have to do their jobs and go through the process of investigative work 
warrant seeking, obtaining a warrant. And even in many cases, the warrant can be obtained retroactively, right? That's a thing. The idea that without using these stingray devices, it's really hard to do police work is not true. It is not that complex to go through the more traditional investigative process, obtain warrants. If you're doing good police work, the warrants are not difficult to justify. Yeah, uh, but, you know, with technology like this at our fingertips, how can you not use it? Well, it's so uh, convenient, right? Hey, why, right. why would we go through the process of getting a warrant from a judge, even though it's pretty straightforward? The judge is, is just sort of there to make sure we have our ducks in a row. Let's just set up these cell tower replicators and start haphazardly connect, collecting metadata. Even after all of this, even if every single case here is overturned, thrown out, or whatever, I guarantee you police departments are still going to try to find ways, uh, legal loopholes, to be using equipment like this because it just makes their job so much easier. This show is brought to you by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked up on the show's website. If you want to dive deeper into today's topic, I've got a couple of suggestions for you. Glenn Greenwald is one of the reporters entrusted with NSA documents by Edward Snowden, and he continues to tell the story of the NSA spying scandal in his book, No Place to Hide. And James Bamford is a preeminent expert on the NSA who's been reporting on them since the 80s. In his 2008 book, The Shadow Factory, he describes the transformation of the NSA after 9-11. Both are available on Audible, and one of these, or any other book you find there, can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best, or, I might add, by visiting your local library. Kate, I was hoping you could explain to me, I've seen some news recently about the NYPD getting information from this, like, crazy vigilant solutions company that has some kind of a database about with license plate and they want to do all manner of crazy stuff with this it's i'm confused can you break it down for me what's going on what's the nypd doing and who's vigilant solutions okay so imagine if you would that there is a network of little cameras on private cars and police cars driving around the country in basically every state, in pretty much every major metropolitan area, hoovering up records showing where everybody drives at any given time, and keeping those records in a centralized database, and then charging access to the database to police departments and banks and other private companies, for example, repossession firms. Now, that would be basically a national location tracking service that a private corporation rents or leases access to. And that's exactly what's happening. So there's a company called Vigilant Solutions. Vigilant Solutions is kind of my arch nemesis. (laughs) A couple years ago... I started looking into the problem of license plate readers. These are these little cameras that are affixed to cars or on the underside of bridges or on telephone poles. Some of them are even hidden in, like, fake traffic barriers and stuff. Um, And what they do is they take pictures of license plates and cars, 
and they do it very quickly so they can capture like 3,000 plates a minute. That's to say, you know, cars racing past on the highway, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how fast they're going, you know, they're all captured by these machines. And the machines convert the, the license plate number into machine-readable text, and then the way that cops have been saying they want to use these technologies is to automatically run those plate numbers against any number of lists that the government has loaded into their license plate reader system. For example, lists of stolen cars, people with outstanding warrants, even, you know, FBI's terrorist watch lists, things like that. So it actually is a really effective law enforcement tool that can be used, I think, without you know, the kind of serious dragnet draconian surveillance implications if cops simply chuck all the data that isn't offensive. So if you're driving past one of these machines and, you know, you're not, you don't have a warrant out for your arrest for some sort of serious violent crime that pings the officer in the car, then nothing is done with the data. It just goes in and out, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Unfortunately, I mean, personally, I would not like that to happen anyway, but that kind of technology is definitely what's going to be unfolding more and more in the future, and the middle-of-the-road sort of constitutional approach would be to say that that kind of deployment is acceptable, but what is happening is completely unacceptable, which is that companies and governments are retaining all of that data. Now, Vigilant is, in my view, the worst because it's the biggest. So wait, so let me just see if I understand. So like Mm -hmm. my mom drives on this particular highway that she knows there are cameras and so she's always like careful to like slow down because she doesn't want one of these little cameras to take a photo of her license plate. You're saying that there's all of these different cameras on all different kinds of places and instead of throwing away the image once they, you know, run it and know that she's not speeding or whatever, they just keep it around? That's right, yeah. So um, there are companies too, like, so basically, okay, there's this firm called Digital Recognition Network and it's a company that mostly works with the repo industry. And a number of years ago, they got into the license plate reading business because they realized that it was a much faster way of identifying where cars that they want to repossess might be. So, you know, for example, they will put license plate readers on tow trucks, which drive around all day, uh, and there will be a database that the repo guys have that's connected to those license plate readers that alerts the repo people to the existence of a car, maybe at somebody's girlfriend's house. They're hiding out. You know, they don't want to go home. They're afraid their car will be repossessed. So they live somewhere else. Um, But that somewhere else is easily discovered by one of these cameras, and then the next day the repo guy shows up and tows the car. So that's how this started out. And then Vigilant Solutions, which was, um, as far as I understand it, renting the equipment or leasing the equipment, the license plate readers to these repo guys, realized that there was um, quite a bit of money to be made in the data itself. And so started um, retaining all of the information that was collected by these repo companies and then doing a second thing, marketing that data to law enforcement agencies. So now the situation that we have is that Vigilant runs this database called the National Vehicle Location Service, NVLS. And NVLS, in the universe of that database, is contained information that is submitted from tow tow truck guys, people whose literally their entire jobs involve driving around sucking up this information and feeding it to Vigilant's database, 
and law enforcement agencies who voluntarily decide they want to contribute their data to Vigilance Database. And once all of this information is mixed up in this database, um, Vigilant turns around and says to police departments, we have this huge intelligence tool that we would like to offer you for a fee. So that fee, you know, Vigilant has been very shady and secretive about exactly how much um, it, they cost, they charge rather, to, to lease this database. Well, just recently, um, some information came out. Uh, Cyrus uh, Farvar from the website Ars Technica found a contract on a uh, New York City website that showed that the NYPD is about to sign a nearly half a million dollar three-year deal to subscribe to that NVLS database. Now, what, you know, I think it's critical for people to understand that what this means is that the NYPD, like other police departments around the country, is now going to be able to access location information on people who live very, very far outside of New York City. So if the NYPD, for example, an officer at the NYPD wants to know where his ex-girlfriend is, it would be theoretically very easy for him to type in her um, license plate number and immediately would uh, populate this database, would populate in front of him a, you know, map. I don't know exactly what the GUI looks like, but some sort of, you know, graphically oriented um image of her movements basically and i should just say and like nerd alert you just said gui if people don't know what that is it's just like the the thing that you use to access software it stands for graphical user interface um but yeah, it's just sorry, like the, the software that you use to look at something yeah so you know it maybe it looks like google maps maybe it looks like a proprietary kind of thing but either way um up would pop a map and some other tools that would help that officer, you know, track that person even in the future. So some other things that the database can do um, is geofence, which in law enforcement is a term that means if a police officer wants to tell the vigilant database, okay, I want to know if this particular license plate, the car with this particular license plate, enters this geographic area. If that happens, please text my cell phone. So that is something that is now wow. happening. Vigilant also intends to combine its massive, and when I say massive, I mean massive. This database has billions of records in it. Not millions, not hundreds of millions, billions. And it is only going to get bigger and bigger as more information is fed into it every single day. They said that last year that they get 70 million unique License plate reads per month added to it. I'm sure at this point it's larger than that. Who knows? Maybe it's 200 million a month at this point. It is growing exponentially, and there is no regulation that deals with this stuff that would limit either how long this information can be kept, um, you know, who the information can be sold to or given to. Um, and so at this point, what we have essentially is a nationwide tracking database that is maintained by a private corporation. Um, God knows really what is going on with that data apart from the sale of some of it to banks and repossession firms and the leasing of all of it to law enforcement agencies. Last year when I was digging into Vigilant a little bit, I found on their website a whole list of agencies that presumably have signed up to access the NV NVLS database. 
they wised up after I talked about it publicly and took that page offline, but I still have, um, I downloaded the list of all the agencies, and it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of agencies nationwide, you know, law enforcement in virtually every state that are tapping into this um, information. So, you know, you might not live in New York City, but the NYPD likely knows where you are. I'll just say one more thing about that, which is that um, there is a way to deal with this problem in, in legislatures, and that is to limit very strictly the way in which law enforcement can access data held by private companies, as well as to regulate how long law enforcement can keep non-derogatory license plate information themselves. One of the problems with regulating companies like Vigilant is that they make a somewhat persuasive First Amendment argument. You know, they say, you can't stop us from taking pictures and then putting them in a database. And that's essentially what they're doing. They're taking photographs of license plates and then putting them in this giant database and leasing access to that information. So from, you know, a civil liberties perspective, it's actually quite a difficult problem to figure out how to, uh, you know, prevent that kind of mass tracking by a private company while simultaneously making it possible for people to take pictures and put them in a database. Um, it's really not a simple egg to crack, actually. So the way that I think we should approach it from the civil liberties perspective is to try to get a handle at least on how the government is accessing the information that's held by the private companies. We might not be able to, in a constitutional manner, tell Vigilant that they can't create the database. We sure as hell can tell the NYPD they can't look at it. Right. So do you think that this could have a constitutional challenge if you targeted it at the way that law enforcement was using this information like is this is there any lawsuits planned on this or is that not something so, yeah, this that would withstand scrutiny I I really hope there will be lawsuits um one of the problems though is well there are two problems one is that in order to bring a lawsuit that might be successful on the question of long-term warrantless location tracking, like what's happening with license plate readers at police departments, you'd really have to have a criminal case in which the government used historical license plate data that they obtained either themselves or from one of these companies in a criminal prosecution against someone and did so without a warrant. And we just haven't seen that. And I think maybe one of the reasons why we haven't seen it is because law enforcement is getting very hip to the notion that anything they present in court can be challenged constitutionally and that therefore they're doing this thing called parallel construction, which we've talked about on this show before, which essentially means that even if they obtain information about you, Alexis, that they use in their investigation um, to essentially, you know, identify you as a suspect or confirm their suspicions that you're guilty of some crime, they might figure out another way to present evidence against you in court without using that license plate reader data because they might know or some prosecutor might tell them, hey, you know, if we present this license plate reader data, their lawyer might challenge the fact that we didn't get a warrant to use it and that would set a really bad precedent going forward because it would take that tool away from us. So what's that called? Um, Parallel construction? Is that right? Yeah, that's called parallel construction and and 
it's long it's been it's been happening for a very long time in this country you know anytime the police do something illegal they can attribute information that they get that they gained to a confidential informant so it's not as if this is particularly new the problem is that the proliferation of very very powerful surveillance technology so that includes things like stingrays um, as well as license plate reader stingrays the devices that trick cell phones into sending information to the cops instead of to your cell phone company there's a theme developing which is that you know if law enforcement wants to use these tools which they very much do uh, they want to a do so in secret and then when they're exposed, uh, the technologies are exposed, they want to figure out a way to make sure that the information that they derive from these devices never reaches a courtroom, mm -hmm. which is really obviously very problematic and makes our job very hard as privacy advocates. And one of the reasons why we are trying to push legislation um, in states nationwide to deal with license plate readers is precisely because of that, because it's not at all clear that we're going to get the right case that would allow us to bring a constitutional challenge. So is you mentioned state legislatures, but I'm just curious, like last show, you know, you talked about how we need to update our electronic privacy laws, and there was some federal legislation. Is anyone trying to approach this from a federal level, or would that be too difficult? And it's There's been no action in Congress on anything remotely <laughs> progressive related to privacy, including uh, license plate reader reform. I believe last year there was a move in the House to bar federal funds from being spent to purchase license plate readers for federal agencies. I don't think that went anywhere. Um, but there was a, a short-lived attempt to do something about it. The problem, though, and Congress really needs to recognize this, is that it's not the devices themselves, it's not the cameras themselves that are really the problem. They're just cameras, ultimately. The, the real problem is the data that those cameras are producing. And, you know, cops shouldn't be able to either access or maintain on their own databases containing the basically location histories of tens or hundreds of millions of innocent people who have been accused of no crime. That's exactly what's happening. But Elizabeth Goykin, co-director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program, says that not only is their premise flimsy, all the evidence is on the other side. The automatic response, I think, to a terrorist attack is, well, we need more information. We should be collecting more information no matter what that information is. But this particular program was a program to collect the telephone records of Americans. So having those records would have done absolutely nothing to prevent the attacks in Paris. And in fact, that information did nothing to prevent any terrorist attacks during the 15 years that that program was in effect. There had been independent reviews conducted of that program, one by a commission that President Obama established, 
one by something called the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. These groups had full access to all of the classified information, and they concluded that the bulk collection of Americans' telephone records had little or no counterterrorism benefit. And yet, presidential candidate Marco Rubio has uh, backed Cotton's bill, saying that it, quote, will provide the intelligence community one more essential tool to help law enforcement connect the dots of terror communications, uncover threats against the U.S. and our allies, and help keep terrorists out of the U.S. Are you saying he's just wrong? He is wrong. We know for a fact that this program is not an essential tool that they know full well would have done nothing to prevent the Paris attacks. What's happened is that intelligence and law enforcement agencies have become addicted to data. And there's a sense that if only they could collect it all, then we'd have perfect security. But we know that that doesn't work. If you look at the underwear bomber, the Fort Hood shooting, the Boston Marathon bombing, the Paris attacks, in all of these cases... The intelligence agencies had the information. They just failed to act on it. And at least in some of those cases, it's partly because the agencies had too much data. Intelligence agencies are drowning in data, and the real threats here are getting lost in the noise. Hmm. I'm sure you haven't missed the fact that the attacks in Paris also fanned the flames of the uh, encryption debate. Now intelligence officials have argued even more vociferously for the idea that tech companies like Apple and Google should enable law enforcement to decode their customers' encrypted messages by building backdoors into their devices. This is something that law enforcement officials have been trying to get for decades. And there's two reasons why it's never happened. First, the United States can't tell foreign companies what to do. So if we decide to mandate backdoors for Apple and Microsoft, the terrorists will just switch over to services that fall outside of our jurisdiction, or they'll create their own. Al-Qaeda built its own encryption software, and they're not going to build a backdoor for the NSA. So there's no way that backdoors can prevent serious terrorist attacks. The second problem is that backdoors will actually make the rest of us less secure. The technology experts have all weighed in. There is no way to build a backdoor that only the U.S. government can walk through. So as soon as you create that vulnerability in the system, you open all of us up to hackers, to identity thieves, to the Chinese government, companies engaged in economic espionage, cyber terrorists, you name it. There is such widespread consensus among the experts that backdoors would be a net loss for security, and that's even putting aside the privacy interests. How widespread is this consensus? Among technology experts, it's pretty much universal. If we're talking about national security officials or law enforcement officials, those who are in office now are probably, I would say, divided. Those who are out of office and can speak more frankly tend to support strong encryption. If this consensus is so strong that it's just going to make things worse for people who operate legally and will have no impact on the people we're trying to track... Why does it keep coming up? It kind of feels a little like climate change. (laughs) That's a very interesting analogy. It's natural, I think, for law enforcement officials to prefer fewer encumbrances on what they do. And this is an encumbrance, and so they don't like it. It also has something to do with the way the intelligence community has been operating. Data collection, at least since 9-11, seems to be the main thing that the intelligence community does. I mean, we keep hearing about the lack of uh, human intelligence, but we've got data up to our eyebrows. 
And that's really part of the problem. It's not just a habit, it's an ethos. When you are a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so the imperative is to collect more, collect more, collect more. And we need to stand back. We need to take an objective look at whether there might be a better, leaner and meaner approach to intelligence where the collection is more targeted at the threats we actually face and where there's more attention paid to analysis of the information that we receive rather than just trying to sweep it all in. So, it is now Sunday, let us say, November 29th. Barring Cotton's bill or something else, what is happening? The USA Freedom Act takes effect. What that means is that if the government wants to obtain Americans' phone records or any other type of business records using these foreign intelligence collection authorities, it has to tie its request to a specific selection term. So that's something like a person's phone number or a person's email address, a person's account. Uh, It doesn't have to be as narrow as a single person. For example, the government could use an IP address, and an IP address can potentially encompass hundreds of people. But it has to be a lot narrower than the collect-it-all program that was in effect previously. Elizabeth, thank you very much. Thank you. Elizabeth Goitin co-directs the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, end dragnet government surveillance. President Obama has pledged to review and bring NSA surveillance in line with the Constitution. With his term running down, the clock is ticking for fulfilling this promise. Executive Order 12333 is a Reagan-era spy program that's still on the books, and while action from Congress would be preferable as it would prevent subsequent administrations from reversing its repeal by executive order, the White House can and should do what it can to bring domestic spying in line with the Constitution and international law. The ACLU has sent a letter to the White House asking that the President prohibit dragnet surveillance and to make any exceptions as narrow as possible with clear time, purpose, and geographic limitations. Visit whitehouse.gov contact to let the President know that privacy is a basic human right that the U.S. should respect abroad as well as domestically and that you expect him to follow through. Also, the law that the the NSA uses to collect phone records of every single American, Section 215 of the Patriot Act, is set to expire on June 1st unless Congress acts. Sign the petition at ACLU.org to let your representatives know you oppose dragnet surveillance. We can't rely on this Congress to pass a comprehensive law to end the practice, but with the entire House and part of the Senate in the midst of election season, we can let them know that we vote on this issue. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, 
always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If privacy and security matter to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the ACLU's efforts via social media so that others in your network can contact the White House and their legislators too. Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how we make a difference in this fickle world of change. We had a series of terrorist attacks in Paris and Beirut this week in Nigeria. And the government is snapping into action. They're looking to get something during this time of fear and uncertainty. And it's your privacy. This time in relation to phones. They say that new smartphones are being made in a way with encryption that stops the government from easily accessing your data. Which sounds like the point of the encryption, but they don't like it and they want to end it. They want the tech companies like Apple, Microsoft, uh, Google to allow backdoors or to allow them to request the information from your smartphone. And obviously the companies don't want to do this because their customers don't want them to do this. But the attack is coming on multiple fronts for multiple people involved in government in the uh, the secrecy industry or the secrecy eliminating industry. First, we have uh, William Bratton, New York City Police Commissioner, saying in relation to the phones, we in many respects have gone blind as a, as a result of the commercialization and the selling of devices that cannot be accessed either by the manufacturer or, more importantly, by us in law enforcement, even equipped with a search warrants and judicial authority. Uh, we also have here, uh, this is John McCain, in the Senate Armed Services, we're going to have hearings on it. We're going to have legislation. He said the status quo is unacceptable. And uh, that's the, 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 Democrat, the Republicans, obviously. You also have a Democrat here. Uh, or at least someone in the Democratic administration. God knows what his personal politics is. Uh, CIA Director John Brennan called the attacks a wake-up call, while Senator Dianne Feinstein, a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee who represents Silicon Valley, said it's a big problem if tech firms create a product that allows evil monsters to communicate in this way. I'm sure that her constituents in Silicon Valley are going to love her putting this sort of pressure on them to do what their customers do not want them to do. And is anybody surprised that on the right and on the left, they're now coming for your privacy? They've wanted this. They wanted this before the terrorist attacks. They don't need it anymore now. They just see an opening. They know that after Paris, after Beirut, after Nigeria now, uh, people are scared. And people feel like they're willing to give up anything to be safe. But these calls are always going to be here. They were here before 9-11. They were strong in the years after 9-11. They're always going to be government officials who are looking to infringe on your privacy in some way. So, look, if this, if these sorts of changes to the law would actually help, let's consider them when we're not immediately fearful as a result of the Paris terrorist attacks. They can wait a week or two, I think. As I said, this has been an ongoing thing. People like Dianne Feinstein, John McCain are always going to find areas of privacy that they think you don't actually need. But you should be extremely hesitant to hand your privacy over to the government because history has shown that once they have it, they are loath to ever give it back.
We just heard clips featuring the Young Turks on how CISA was snuck into an end-of-year omnibus bill during the holidays. Tom Hartman talked with Marcy Wheeler to discuss the ineffectiveness of metadata surveillance. Counterspin called out those who seek to intimidate whistleblowers and the media, as well as the media itself, for falling for it. David Pakman talked about 2,000 cases in New York that may be overturned because of the use of Stingray spying devices. A show called Humorless Queers detailed the problem with the proliferation of automatic license plate readers and the data they generate. On the Media explained why just collecting all the data doesn't work and the major downside of creating backdoors to our encrypted devices. Our activism for the day was from the ACLU, and the Young Turks rounded it out with a warning about the one-way ratchet nature of giving away rights to the government. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay. This is Ryan from Phoenix. I wanted to call in uh, response to Rick from Pennsylvania. A little bit of background for everybody to understand. Architects work with their clients. I'm an urban planner. I work in the public sector. I work for city government. And so when Rick is concerned for people being involved in what gets built, uh, that's directly in my wheelhouse. And while it's not a perfect system, we as urban planners are tasked with the responsibility of reaching out to the public and getting the public involved in developing codes, plans, expectations, so that the policies and the governance that we're applying to the built environment meets the needs or the expectations of the public and so average citizens. That is uh, at play against the power struggle that Rick is talking about with the rich and the institutions' um, influence on what gets built. So I am very much an arm of the public public will. Now, where we fall short is in two aspects. One, we're not reaching out to enough people. Enough people do not understand that they have a lot of influence in how their built environment or their city evolves, especially on a timeline of 10 to 20 years. There's an incredible amount of influence that the public has with what gets built. And this is a very broad concept. Let me break it down a little bit. The house that you live in, the amount of yard, the private ownership of of land that you have, um, how much that breaks down and how much is underutilized and how much we maximize uh, really is an influence of how efficient a city operates. So the more land that private people own individually, the more space and the greater distance that everybody in that system has to travel between different locations. This is a concept of density, and density is a great friend to sustainability. Now, that said, not everybody can live in a super dense Hong Kong type of environment, and I live and work in a city with far less density than that, but we can find a balance. We have to have our urban spaces where we have a lot of opportunity for other types of lifestyles other than a car dependence, suburban, long commute, high energy, low efficiency type of system and where we have great pockets and opportunities for people to choose more sustainable lifestyles that can help offset the greater 
energy use of those less urban spaces. And, you know, with changing of technology and getting off of fossil fuels, all that can come together to being a great influence. Now, I said that there's a shortfall and how urban planners bring people into the system. Let me expand on that even greater. So even when we are successful at bringing in the public to be part of this conversation, we have so much ground to make up with regard to kind of what I was just speaking about. Like there's an education process that people need to understand. So we need to do better jobs at creating things like book clubs and uh putting out videos or or sharing our knowledge because I have a master's degree in this so I understand the system a lot to a lot greater detail I understand the processes and the the uh, the way that these systems interrelate between land uses and transportation and lifestyle and quality of life and people's uh, misconceptions about space and conflict and comfort being comfortable with their neighbors and um so, I mean, there's sociology and psychology and economics, land economics, monetary economics, finances. All these things are coming into play into what gets built. So, yes, institutions have a lot of power. They wield a lot of money. They have things figured out on how to get financing, and they've proven that they can get a return, and they're putting out a product. Now that product is kind of etched in stone at some to some degree because they're very confident that they can get a return on that product. So influencing the institutions to change that product to meet the public demand is a fight, but it's a fight worth having and it's a fight worth being involved in. And so I challenge best of less listeners to get involved in their city planning. Go to your city's website, find planning and development. You can make an influence. You have to fight for it, though. You have to do a little bit of homework. You have to work with your planners. You have to ask a lot of questions and really make sure that they're working with you and getting to uh, the solutions and the sustainable environment that you're hoping to evolve your city into. Thanks, Jay. Hey Jay, this is Nick from California. I just got through listening to a bunch of back episodes I was behind on because of the holidays. One of your episodes made me think of an anecdote that I think really highlights white privilege and the differential treatment in our society of people of color, especially by the police. When I was 19 or 20-ish, this was about 15 years ago, uh, me and a friend thought it would be kind of funny to take airsoft pistols and uh, shoot at a light at another friend's house, a street light that was making an obnoxious humming noise. I don't think we thought we would be successful, but I think we thought it would be funny. And uh, so we did this, and I think one of my other friend's neighbors saw us doing this. And so we got in the car, we drove a few blocks away. I was showing a a friend, another friend that was in the car with us, the, the pistol, we got out of the car. And I see a cop coming, and I put the gun like in my pants to get it out of sight, so I could put it in my pocket. And next thing I realize that this cop's not just going down the street, he's actually there because of me. And he gets out of his car, is hiding behind his door, has the gun trained at my chest, he's trembling. And uh, in the fright of the situation, I don't hear him saying, put the gun down. 
and I actually take the gun out of my pocket and like put my hands above my head so the gun is above my head pointed upwards. Nevertheless, I really wasn't following his instructions, which I did not actually even hear. Eventually, I did put the gun down, and I did not get shot, and I am still here, and Tamir Rice isn't. And I think that that speaks volumes about white privilege and the unfortunate treatment of people of color and the, the differential burdens of people in our society. And uh, thanks, Jay. Stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, in the previous episode, I posed a question asking what you, the listeners, would like the show to sound like throughout this election year. I definitely got plenty of responses. Here is a quick sampling of what that sounded like. Hi, Jay. This is Jack from Atlanta. Hey, Jay. This is Randy in Florida. Hi, Jay. This is Matt in PA. Just calling to weigh in on your question about whether you should be covering more of the election stuff. Um, I don't think you should. Uh, you asked how often should you have an election show, and I think about once a month would be about right. Once a month. It would be probably be worth... Uh, covering Bernie and uh, Hillary and uh, getting into more in-depth discussion about their, their pros and cons. Hey, Jay, this is Rob. I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hi, Jay. This is Rick from Scranton, Pennsylvania. What I would personally like to hear is more about all of the other things that have to change if Sanders gets elected. One thing I, I would like here rather than maybe the negative side about all the Republican stuff is maybe a little bit about the positives. Uh, I know there's not a whole lot of positives, but personally, I'm really liking a lot of the stuff that Bernie Sanders has been saying and has said for years, and I've been following him way before he ever ran for president. Putting a different person in the White House isn't going to fix everything. It may actually not fix I already get my election news from a lot of other sources, and I actually quite enjoy the fact that you don't really cover it, because it does get kind of anonymous. As far as I'm concerned, I've, I've enjoyed the fact that you've covered it minimally so far, and I would continue to do as you have. Keep the show the way it is. Don't cover too much of the election unless it's something that's very, very important to um, the news as a whole. Don't make it election-driven by any means. I, you, you've done real well, and I'd like to see it continue. Anyway, thanks a lot. Keep it up. Okay, bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. So anyway, uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. So my analysis of the comments that have come in so far, voicemails as well as emails, is that, uh, you know, surprisingly, people who already listen to the show and, and have probably been listening for, you know, a decent enough time because they have the motivation to actually want to call in and, and influence how the show is going to sound – of that subsection of self-selected people, turns out they like the show how it is. Who would have guessed? Uh, so, you know, I, I guess maybe what I what I should be doing is asking a different subsection of people because, you know, in, in an election year, that can be an opportunity for a political show like this to grow its audience. You know, people are interested in politics and, you know, want to kind of get plugged in before the big election. 
And so, you know, maybe they would come here and they'd like what they heard, or maybe they'd come here and would be disappointed that they're not getting the, you know, play by play, what's happening, Dems versus the Republicans, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, who, who I should really ask is anyone who doesn't listen to this show. So, you know, if, if you are a longtime listener and, and you want to chime in, please do. I would love to hear from you. But if you don't listen to this show, if you've never heard of this show, if you don't, you know, you, you can't hear the sound of my voice right now, you don't know I'm asking this question, I would love your input. Uh, that, that could prove uh, to be really beneficial to, uh, you know, strategizing how to grow the show. So again, the number to dial 202-999-3991. Keep the excellent calls coming in on this or any other topic. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to all those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, especially in this election year when people might be a little bit willing to listen to politics when they might not otherwise be. Uh, and you can also leave glowing reviews for us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always found in the show notes on the blog. So come to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're doing